Last week, George Floyd became the latest in a long chain of black people in America that have fallen victim to police brutality and systemic violence. The brutal manner of his death resulted in protests in the city of Minneapolis and later throughout the rest of America and now in fact the world. The systems that allowed for his death and the deaths of countless other black men and women in this country were not created in the current administration, or in previous ones for that matter. They've been as foundational to this country as just about anything else. They're rooted in white supremacy and are a part of the heritage of this country. As a non-black person of color, it falls on me to empathize and take on this fight in whatever way I can with my black brothers and sisters. To call out injustice and be a voice for the oppressed and not side with the oppressor. To my fellow non-black peoples of color, Latinos, I want to encourage you to stop and listen and learn. Now is not the time to compare your plight with theirs, but instead maybe realize that their plight is ours. This is a human plight, and it's a uniquely American one. It is a time to realize that injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere and to learn about how the history of our country is filled with the oppression of black people. One author has been incredibly important to my personal learning journey. His name is Tanehasi Coates. His book, Between the World and Me, is a view into a world I had no idea existed and served as an eye-opener for me. His essays and writing published in The Atlantic have also been some of the best things I've ever read, and his collection, We Were Eight Years in Power, is also very important reading. One particular piece I'd like to recommend for you to read is The Case for Reparations, in which he goes at depth into the unique systemic oppression of blacks in this country and the debt that is owed to them by this country. If you're looking for somewhere to learn or somewhere to start learning, start there. I'd like to stop talking now and instead leave you with a speech that he, Tanehasi Coates, gave in front of Congress last year, in which he spoke on the need for America to consider reparations as a means to correct the past and heal the wound that this country has been carrying since its foundation. I leave you now with him. I encourage you to listen, to learn. And one final thing, Black Lives Matter. Yesterday, when asked about reparations, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell offered a familiar reply. America should not be held liable for something that happened 150 years ago, since none of us currently alive are responsible. This rebuttal proffers a strange theory of governance, that American accounts are somehow bound by the lifetime of its generations. But well into this century, the United States was still paying out pensions to the heirs of Civil War soldiers. We honor treaties that date back some 200 years, despite no one being alive who signed those treaties. Many of us would love to be taxed for the things we are solely and individually responsible for. But we are American citizens, and thus bound to a collective enterprise that extends beyond our individual and personal reach. It would seem ridiculous to dispute invocations of the founders or the greatest generation on the basis of a lack of membership in either group. We recognize our lineage as a generational trust, as inheritance. And the real dilemma posed by reparations is just that, a dilemma of inheritance. It is impossible to imagine America without the inheritance of slavery. As historian Ed Baptist has written, enslavement, quote, shaped every crucial aspect of the economy and politics of America. 
so that by 1836, more than 600 million, almost half of the economic activity in the United States derived directly or indirectly from the cotton produced by the million-odd slaves. By the time the enslaved were emancipated, they comprised the largest single asset in America, $3 billion in 1860 dollars, more than all the other assets in the country combined. The method of cultivating this asset was neither gentle cajoling nor persuasion, but torture, rape, and child trafficking. Enslavement reigned for 250 years on these shores. When it ended, this country could have extended its hallowed principles, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness to all regardless of color. But America had other principles in mind. And so for a century after the Civil War, black people were subjected to a relentless campaign of terror, a campaign that extended well into the lifetime of Majority Leader McConnell. It is tempting to divorce this modern campaign of terror, of plunder, from enslavement. But the logic of enslavement, of white supremacy, respects no such borders. And the god of bondage was lustful and begat many heirs, coup d'etats and convict leasing, vagrancy laws and debt peonage, redlining and racist GI bills, poll taxes and state-sponsored terrorism. We grant that Mr. McConnell was not alive for Appomattox, but he was alive for the electrocution of George Stinney. He was alive for the blinding of Isaac Woodward. He was alive to witness kleptocracy in his native Alabama and a regime premised on electoral theft. Majority Leader McConnell cited civil rights legislation yesterday, as well he should, because he was alive to witness the harassment, jailing, and betrayal of those responsible for that legislation by a government sworn to protect them. He was alive for the redlining of Chicago and the looting of black homeowners of some $4 billion. Victims of that plunder are very much alive today. I am sure they'd love a word with the majority leader. What they know, what this committee must know, is that while emancipation dead bolted the door against the bandits of America, Jim Crow wedged the windows wide open. And that is the thing about Senator McConnell's something. It was 150 years ago, and it was right now. The typical black family in this country has one-tenth the wealth of the typical white family. Black women die in childbirth at four times the rate of white women. And there is, of course, the shame of this land of the free, boasting the largest prison population on the planet, of which the descendants of the enslaved make up the largest share. The matter of reparations is one of making amends and direct redress, but it is also a question of citizenship. In H.R. 40, this body has a chance to both make good on its 2009 apology for enslavement and reject fair-weather patriotism, to say that a nation is both its credits and its debits, that if Thomas Jefferson matters, so does Sally Hemings, that if D-Day matters, so does Black Wall Street, that if Valley Forge matters, so does Fort Pillow. Because the question really is, not whether we will be tied to the somethings of our past, but whether we are courageous enough to be tied to the whole of them. Thank you.